Welcome to Making Therapy Better, the podcast that brings together some of the top minds in psychotherapy as well as everyday clinicians to talk about where the field is headed and how we can achieve better mental health care for everyone. Making Therapy Better is hosted by Professor Bruce Wampold, who has dedicated his career to understanding how therapy works and advocating evidence-based methods for improving outcomes. His guests today are Terry Moyers, PhD, and Bill Miller, PhD. Dr. Moyers is a professor in the psychology department at the University of New Mexico. Her research has focused on empirically supported interventions for substance use, as well as the characteristics of effective therapists. She has more than 30 peer-reviewed papers in these areas and has been a keynote speaker and workshop teacher in 11 countries. Bill Miller is Emeritus Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico. Along with Stephen Rolnick, he played a key role in the development of motivational interviewing. Together, Bill and Terry are the authors of Effective Psychotherapists, Clinical Skills That Improve Client Outcomes. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths has been helping in-person and virtual therapy practices thrive for over 20 years with their complete web-based EHR and practice management platform. As mental health care evolves, CarePaths is leading the way in making measurement-based care easy and cost-effective for therapists. Visit carepaths.com to sign up for a free trial today. And now, without further ado, episode 8 of Making Therapy Better, What is Empathy? with Terry Moyers, Ph.D. and Bill Miller, Ph.D. So, um, this is such an opportunity to talk to both of you um, about issues in effective psychotherapy. Um, you know, both of you clearly have made contributions to motivational interviewing, developed it, disseminated along with Stephen Rolnick. Today, I want to talk more about what makes an effective therapist and the skills of effective therapists. We might return to uh, motivational interviewing because I have some questions about that as well if we have time. So, um, you know, I've been in the field a few decades. You have. <laughs> as have you, Bill. And we collect a lot of books. I see all the books in your background. Well, two of the books that I keep at the forefront are books that you guys have written. It was mm -hmm. a Effective Therapist and Listening Well, because they're two of my favorite books uh, about insights into psychotherapy, how it works and how we can make it better. So the question I want to start with in this um, age of evidence-based therapies, how is it that listening skills are at the central part of your thinking about what makes an effective therapist, but also central to motivational interviewing? Well, and as far as uh, central to thinking about effective therapists, it, it's the biggest effect size. And we went back through 70 years of psychotherapy research looking for what is it that marks more effective therapists who seem to be doing the same therapy as their colleagues and yet get better outcomes. Um, uh, and also works in the other direction, by the way, that, that therapists who get worse outcomes than their colleagues tend to be low on accurate empathy. Uh, so it's a pretty good marker. It's not the only one, uh, 
but when you look at the data, if you just driven by effectiveness data, that's the one that stands out. It says if, you, if you're going to pick your therapist based on one characteristic, this is not a bad one to pay attention to. So I'll just jump in and say that, you know, Bruce, you asked about listening skills, which are a critical component of the therapist's characteristic of empathy, but certainly not the only thing mm -hmm. that defines empathy, right? So I think the data for listening skills is reasonably good, but certainly not as good and as, as robust as that for empathy. Well, that's great because I want to spend some time talking about empathy because mm -hmm. you know it seems like it's it's a a relatively straightforward skill and yet there's so many nuances to it disagreements about it yep um so let's explore that so i'm excited to do this yeah. so the first thing i want to ask about and it's emanates from discussions I've had with colleagues about empathy. And I have colleagues who claim this is a, a uh, uh, interpsychic concept. It's a trait. You have to um, be an empathic person. And if you understand people and you understand their struggles in their life, um, you will be empathic. And others say, well, this is a skill, an interpersonal skill. You can learn it, you can teach it, and you can acquire it. So talk to me about um, kind of the, the, the trait versus skill aspect of empathy. Well, you know, when we sat down to write this book about therapist interpersonal skills, it was quite clear that for all of the skills we were going to talk about, that same sort of dilemma was present, which is that in some ways it lives inside the therapist's mind. And in other ways, it's a skill that's communicated between the therapist and the client. And that's exactly why we structured the book the way we did and the skills the way we did, which is that each of the skills, we talk about the internal component and the external component. And for empathy, I mean, I tend to, we, we define empathy very carefully as understanding the perspective of the other person and being able to convey that. that mm -hmm. That's our idea of empathy. Not, we didn't make that up, but that's the one that we've, sort of paired our understanding to. Uh, it, it's, it's simple and in some ways quite elegant to be thinking about it that way. And sometimes that means an emotional component, but sometimes it doesn't, right, d d it, from, from my perspective. Um, but the, the, the internal component of empathy you can get at from a lot of roads. I mean, I tend to think about life experience as a way of contributing to empathy. Some people have experience, lived experience that really helps them be able to understand the experience of others. And I, you know, I think about that from a multicultural perspective, right? That that may that ability to be empathic in that way and understanding in that way might come from lived experience. It might come from reading that you've done, you know, the artistic 
products that you've been exposed to. It, it could be your own experiences in, you know, your childhood or that you've had it, from, from my perspective with, uh, with clients. It was in many ways, the experiences that I listened to from my clients that taught me uh, a little bit of empathy, but it's also all of that living inside of me doesn't do me any good unless I can convey that directly to my client. And that's where I think you know, the importance of listening skills is so prominent. It's a vehicle for conveying empathy and lots of other uh, kinds of uh, uh, interpersonal skills as well. What do you think, Bill? Well, empathy develops naturally also uh, in children as they as they grow up to varying extents, of course. And, and there are some psychological disorders that involve very low levels of empathy. But, but normally you develop this ability to anticipate to some extent what someone else is thinking and experiencing uh, while you're interacting with them. Um, and so it's, it's not an unusual thing. It's, it's a normal characteristic, mm -hmm. but people do vary on it. And, uh, but you're right that if, if it only lives inside the therapist, that doesn't do the client much good. I mean, that was clear from Carl Rogers work that, that yes, you want to be accurate about it, but you also want to convey back to the client what you're experiencing, and that's how you become accurate. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk in a few minutes about the expressing the empathy, because that seems like a skill we might be able to teach. But in terms of the internal processes, um, it's a, a little bit tricky, isn't it? We select uh, students in our counseling and clinical um, programs based on uh, GREs and, and uh, grades and recommendations. Uh, uh, I mean, we get a whole variety of people in these programs with a range of uh, kind of that trait, empathy. What do, how do we develop that as trainers of therapists? Well, it's very measurable. I mean, I, and it's like pornography, you know it when you see it, you know, but, but um, yeah, I taught this as a first course in the clinical curriculum for 31 years. Um, and most of the students, at least most of us coming into the psychology program, were able to develop the skill to various extents, and some had a pretty good level of skill to start with. There were a handful over the course of, of three decades that I, I was not successful in helping them develop this skill. And as best I can tell, it seemed to be just an inability to see a perspective other than their own. Mm -hmm. to put themselves in someone else's place, mm -hmm. which is fundamentally to, fundamental to empathy, and imagine what experience would be like from that perspective. But it wasn't very many, um, but those were ones we, we worried about. Yeah, yeah, of mm -hmm. course. Um, and, and all of us as trainers uh, have had that experience. But you talk about it as a skill, even yeah. the, the ability to understand and experience um, somebody else's perspective as a skill. Is that? Yeah, 
of course. And again, because if you just have an internal state that you need a skill to be able to convey that therapeutically, right? But but to me, empathy is both of those things. It's not just a skill and it's not just an internal state. It's the interaction between the two of them. Okay, but but I get the skill part. Yep. Uh, and I understand how you might practice that, although we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But the internal part, how do you teach that internal part? I mean, Terry, you were saying this comes from experience. It might come from your childhood. And Bill, you talked about it's a natural thing that develops in a normal uh, uh, childhood family experience. But clearly, we want to enhance that even for those who have developed a, a healthy perspective. But how do you actually? Um, teach that or enhance it in a training program or in supervision, for instance? Well, the Truex and Karka were writing about this back in the 60s and developed measures of the depth of and quality of reflection that work that predict client outcomes as well. Uh, so it, it's not you know, mysterious, it's behavior, it's, it's Something that you're doing. But that's the, that's the express part, Bill. That's the express part. What about? The internal part. Yes. Yeah. How do you? I mean, your clients teach you, basically. Yes. I mean, when you, when, you do the, when you do this, you get better at anticipating and understanding what it is that people mean because they're helping you to learn that. So it, it, it's almost like we've, we've talked about the spirit of motivational interviewing and people say, well, are you born with that? Well, no. But how do you learn that? You learn by doing it. Mm -hmm. You learn by the practice of it, and it teaches you empathy. So mm -hmm. it's something you learn from your clients. Yeah, and I th I think there I tend to think of it as like a rubber band that you know you people are born with a capacity for empathy. It's probably normally distributed in the population, like lots of other things that are selected for by evolution. Right? There's mm -hmm. there's a varying levels of it. So you come with a certain size of rubber band. And then you might have experiences or training or things that you intentionally or non-intentionally uh, participate in that stretch that rubber band. So you mm -hmm. can be born with a small capacity, but you experience a lot of training and exposure to clients and life events that really stretch that out to be a nice big circumference. Or mm -hmm. you can be born with a, with a big rubber band and not do mm -hmm. much to stretch it. So it, I genuinely do think of it as an interaction like that. Mm -hmm. You're you're so good with metaphor, which is another form of empathy. Actually, that that when you can find a metaphor that fits inside that person's experience, it can be very very powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Robert Elliot, you may have seen it, uh, Bruce. Robert Elliot just published a review, a meta analysis of reflection. Now, this the yep. just the behavior itself. Effect size was zero. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it just the behavior itself uh, isn't what's doing it. It, there's a whole, there's more to empathy than that. Mm -hmm. So it, it says something that Roger was worried about, that don't, don't think of this as a technique uh, and mm -hmm. you just do the technique and then it works. Uh, he found no effect size at all for just the behavior of reflective listening. And of course, we've all had the experience of listening to therapists who are, who are competent at forming reflections, but they don't go anywhere, right? They, mm -hmm. they just circle around again and again and again in the most simple fashion. And it, it it's it's annoying for everyone. 
I I call it uh, therapist speak. So when when uh, uh, novice therapists talk, they often have listened to tapes or watched therapists, and they sound like the therapist they're imitating mm-hmm. without actually expressing the mm-hmm. kind of the emotional content or the understanding in a deeper way mm-hmm. they have the words but not the music yeah yeah that's a good metaphor <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about variation in empathy by as a function of who the client is so i'm working with some supervisors so supervision of uh, supervision, but we're also talking about their own cases, which is interesting. So I have a, uh, a supervisor who's a very empathic person, and I've seen his work. He expresses it well. But in the case he was talking about recently, it was with a client um that was extremely difficult. So this is a client who um, was mandated to come to therapy um, by uh, the the, uh, um, criminal justice system. And he starts off by saying that he wished the head of the government would get cancer and die. And then he went on to blame all of his problems on various racial and cultural groups, including the one that the therapist belonged to. So um, the supervisor brought this case up because it was a one-session case. And I said, well, describe what you did in the session. And he said, well, I I validated uh, the, the client. Well, tell us what you said. And it was pretty clear. I hear you're angry at the head of the government. I hear you don't like uh, various racial and ethnic groups who you perceive to be holding you back. Um, Clearly, he was the first one to admit um, that he wasn't expressing empathy. So this was, as he described it, a pretty vile person. I mean, you know, to attack the racial group of your therapist uh, very, very explicitly is a difficult thing to deal with. How do you develop empathy for a client like this? Well, you're, you're describing the average client that we've seen through our careers. <laughs> in, 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 a, in addiction treatment, you know, it, well over half of people are pushed through the door and don't want to be there. So that's not unusual. And in a way, that's why motivational eating got developed. Uh, how do you respond to someone who comes through so wired to uh, be angry at you and not listen and so forth? Uh, and it turns out you you listen with empathy. You know, those, that kind of flat reflection isn't going to go anywhere that you were talking about. Um, but joining with the person in an empathic way is pretty powerful stuff. And usually there are very few people have done that with someone who's had a career of uh, substance use disorder. Uh, so 
it just seems to work reasonably well. Uh, but but mandated people, if you if you are are disingenuous with them, which is what what's happening in those reflections you're talking about, or you push back against them, you, you get nowhere. Now, now, Terry, that's that's your kind of person, also. I mean, you're you're so good at dealing with people who come through the door angry and and don't want to be there. Yeah, and I think uh, there's a reason why there are eight skills in our book because you need more than empathy. You have yes. to be able to do something besides just be a one trick pony and always be pulling the empathy card out. And I, I think you know, there's a couple of things that occur to me, and one is genuineness, which is that you can you can share a little bit of your response uh, as a therapist about feeling like, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Right? I I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm I'm at a loss here to figure out how I should help. And another is to, you know, emphasize the person's autonomy. Like, what is it you would like to accomplish in the in the time that we have here together? How can I be helpful to you, given, you know, what you're telling me? Because it, mm. it really it really is up to you if you're going to make any changes here. It's it's not up to me. Mm. And mm. I, so I might think about I might think about doing both of those things. And and then the question is, they do does that actually express empathy right because because as a sort of a meta construct because you're really reading what the client needs and responding to that mm-hmm. in a in a personalized way as opposed to saying okay well i'm just i'm just going to be empathic mm-hmm. talk about talk about responsiveness terry well that's exactly an example of it right yes it, it is 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 uh yeah, not deciding that using the process that's in the room, what's actually happening with the client to, d- to help you decide what you're going to do next, as opposed to inflexibly implementing whatever skill or technique or method that you're using. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, important point that we're talking about empathy, but empathy isn't the only uh uh, technique, or I, I don't want to say technique, but the only the only response available, and you have to think about the other uh, uh, seven or eight skills that you discuss. And I like the one about autonomy. That 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 seems to be an important observation here. It, it certainly is with people who come in with with uh, addictive behaviors or substance use disorders. Um, because that often is a, is a symbol for them of their autonomy. Nobody's going to tell me what to do and so on. Um, and that's the truth. And, and if, if you don't accept that the person gets to make their own choices, uh, it's not going to go well. Mm-hmm. And, and ironically, when, when you inside, this is the interior piece again, when you inside know that deeply, that it is this person's choice and it's up to them, uh, then you're more likely to, first of all, be empathic, you know, to be able to do that, to connect with the person, uh, and to honor and acknowledge that that is their freedom. And when you do that, then the, the defensive walls start to come down. 
I, I think the ability to honor autonomy and to even think of doing that, of, of, of mentioning it, really is a whole comes from a whole different model and way of thinking about what your interaction with the client is supposed to be about. So if you believe that you're the expert and your job is to change the client by what you have in your head or what it is that you're going to do, that's a lot of weight that won't support a lot that that won't allow you to do a lot of, of autonomy support. But if you believe your job is to collaborate and to evoke from the client what happens and what changes will be made and how those will come about, then that allows you to consider things like supporting autonomy, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Still challenging situation when I think about this particular client, but it, as you say, um, this is the rubber band, and you've got to work with a number of clients like this to really understand how difficult their life is. Yes. I mean, this is a guy who clearly is struggling. If if a trained therapist has a hard time yep. uh, 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 understanding and, and feeling compassionate towards you, think what everyone else feels about this person. Yeah, and I think lots of times clients come in like, I mean, sometimes people are just reprehensible, you know, and and we we all, I'm sure, maybe not Bill, could could give an example of somebody that's come in that that just made us throw up our hands because they were just so obnoxious. And yet I've had the experience many times of a person that came in the door looking exactly that same way and you know, a little while later, there things have softened, and they're not really quite that vile and quite that reprehensible. Like I always tell my students, you know, sometimes, sometimes what you're looking at is the cake of contemplation covered by the frosting of pre-contemplation. If we use use <laughs> the Prochaska and De Clemente model, right? And so you mm-hmm. got to cut, you got to cut the cake to know what you've really got there. And sometimes empathy is the best is the best knife you've got, actually. Yeah. Another metaphor. Can you say it again? Because I think it's it's a, oh, such sure. a beautiful, beautiful metaphor. Oh, thank you. Well, what I tell my students is sometimes you have the cake of contemplation that's covered by the frosting of pre-contemplation. And you mm. kind of got to cut the cake before you know what you really got. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's a very powerful metaphor. So let's return to empathy because uh, uh, I saw this article in Forbes magazine. I'm going to look at my notes because I want to um, uh, read the title of this article. And it's Four Reasons Why Compassion is Better for Humanity Than Empathy. And then I watched a YouTube uh, uh, by this person who claimed that Empathy leads to burnout, and this is the problem with the mental health field. We feel too exquisitely what's going on, and that's a burden. We need to feel instead compassion. And I have to say, I listened and I read the article and listened to the YouTube, and I didn't get it. So I'm hoping one of you or both of you can explain to me the difference mm-hmm. between compassion and empathy if there is a difference and kind of your reaction to this idea that it leads to burnout. 
I don't, I don't know if it's, it's the author of the book uh, against empathy, uh, but uh, there, there is such a book. Uh, and he gives some good examples. Uh, I think one, one that I remember is when you feel, and you could call this compassion or empathy, I think, but, but if you're talking to someone who needs a, an organ transplant and you're moved by that, you, I mean, you, you, feel, you feel empathy for that person. If it causes you to jump that person up the list above other people waiting, that's unjust. You know, that's that's not compassionate in the in the larger sense. And it's the kind of thing he was talking about that that the the experience of empathy can lead you to do things that may not be uh, in the best interest even of the person or of the larger interest of society. So I, I get that. Uh, again, that's not. That's not the skill of empathy that we're that we're talking about. Uh, it's a it's a feeling piece of it. Now, I think of compassion the way the Dalai Lama does, which is it's an intention. It's a benevolent intention. Your desire to not harm uh, and to have the other person's best interests be at the forefront, uh, be your prime directive. So we talk about that in motivational interviewing as, as a an intentional component of it. Um, empathy has more of an affective component, although it can also as a cognitive component. It's a complicated idea. Um, but I, I can at least get what an author like that is saying, that, that uh, the feeling of empathy, which you might call sympathy, can, can cause you to make decisions that may not be the best. Uh, now, I don't think there's much empirical evidence for that. There are yeah. anecdotes yeah. and e examples, yeah. but when you look at the literature on well-measured accurate empathy, the outcomes are pretty profoundly positive. Um, so there's a cautionary tale there uh, to be aware of, but I, I don't think it's a data-based argument. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think Paul Bloom's work, he, he's the author of the Against Empathy book, and his his um, thesis seems to be that empathy is sort of reflexive, it's unconscious, and it's uh, we're prepared by evolution to experience empathy for people who are like us so that we affiliate with our in-group and, and mm. we sacrifice for our in-group, and that that tendency can be harmful to clients and to us. And that again, the the compassion is the response to that. So I that that's an interesting idea. I just I haven't I I've not I'm not convinced by the data that mm -hmm. that that's so or that that's been explored sufficiently for us to throw throw out uh, the current way we think about empathy. Yeah, and not just by the data, but by our own experience. I think you. Yeah. Would. To to. Yeah, to me, empathy is not reflexive and unconscious. I mean, there's a component of it that's like that, certainly. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the, to me, empathy is a very present internal experience mm -hmm. that I'm aware but of. I think part of the argument also is that the empathic response, we feel other people's suffering so exquisitely that we're just uh, uh, well burned out because how many different terrible stories do we we take on in that deep empathic resonance mm -hmm. before we we go 
you know, life is is just horrible. Well, there, I mean, there are people, you can call them empaths. Uh, if you're a Star Trek fan, it's, it's Deanna Troy, uh, who literally feel other people's experience. And that's hard on you. Uh, I think they would have a hard time being therapists in a way. You would think that would set you up to do well, uh, but you can't turn it off. You, you can't not feel what the other person is feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- in that sense of empathy, uh, it could burn you out. It, it's not my experience. I mean, I much more enjoyed my work by virtue of practicing what Rogers talked about as empathy. Uh, and so part of the problem is it is so many different things it can mean as well. Uh, we've been pretty specific about this measurable skill that Rogers and Truex and Karkoff were, were developing, uh, of which high levels are associated with therapists who have better, whose clients have better outcomes. And indeed, low levels, we have an article called, is low empathy toxic? And the answer is yes, that you're probably better off having no therapist than to have one with a very low level of empathy. Mm-hmm. So, Bruce, do you really do you believe that empathy means you're suffering with your client? No, I don't. But yeah. I've heard that argument being made, and I hear therapists um, repeat that. And there are yeah. people for whom it's true. There yes. are people for whom it's true. Yes, yeah. and what I what I would say is that there are some problems or conditions or situations that might be that way for a therapist only those and not others, right? So you you mm-hmm. may, that may be personal to the therapist, what it is that causes them to suffer with their client. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's a complex topic. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I want to talk about the, um, the actual skill part of this. And what I want to talk about is the and maybe uh, use different language to talk about it, but the inference part of this. So, um, and I'm going to use a transcript from your book to illustrate this. And okay. I'm again going to refer to my notes. So, um, uh, and well. I'll give some background about this in a minute, but uh, um, the complexity of the responses. So, um, you know, empathy is much more than saying, again, this is kind of the therapist speak. I understand the anger with your father, okay? I mean, that is a statement about the experience of the client. He is angry at his father, and the therapist says, I understand it. But it's a very um, surface response because it's pretty much just mm-hmm. what uh, the client said, or at least was yeah. clear in what he said. It doesn't show that the therapist understands it. No, that's true. That's true. But that's another point we should we should come back to. But um uh in the book there's the parent who's concerned about their child and the friends they're keeping because the friends are a bad influence and uh 
the parent says she won't listen when we, you know, give her advice about the, the trouble she's having. And the therapist says, you're pretty worried about her. Well, the client didn't say anything about worry. So there's an inference that, that uh, the parent uh, is expressing or uh, um, experiencing worry about, about their kid. So later, uh, the parent says, it's like she doesn't care. And the therapist says, you do care, though, and aren't willing to give up on her. So the, the empathic statements go beyond what the client is expressing. Now, I've heard Carl Rogers talk about this a bit, too. Um, but explain how this inference, and maybe you don't like the word inference, but this, I call it inference, there's an inference about what's behind these statements that is really important. So just talk about the inference, how, and then more important is how you develop the skill to be able to make that inference and express it in that way. Yes. But I find just so important to the therapeutic process. Yeah. And I, I again say your clients teach you. In one of one of the early learnings when you're trying to help someone learn uh, accurate empathy is that you are making inferences. I think most people don't realize that. Mm -hmm. Most people res respond to what they think the person meant as, as if that's really what they meant. Uh, and so untangling that, that actually you're making guesses constantly when you're making reflections. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's better to do it as a statement than a question. That's another interesting thing to untangle. Uh, but that you are making a guess. That's what a, that's what a reflection is. And so then you get immediate feedback uh, as to how close your guess is. And you get much more than verbal feedback. You get all kinds of nonverbal feedback mm -hmm. as well. And you're paying attention always to what the face is saying and what, what posture is saying and what else is going on. So reflecting that as well. Uh, so you make those, those guesses, those hypotheses. And that's, that's the word that Rogers used uh, about reflections. It's an hypothesis that you're, that you're getting, but it's the best kind of learning because you get immediate feedback every time, basically. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you do that for 20 years, you just get better at guessing. You get better at knowing what it means when someone says those words with that expression on their face and so forth. At least you're more likely to be accurate. And, and you're, Clients say, how did you know that? Well, I, I, mean, I knew that from reflecting for 20 years, uh, people that, what their experience is. I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Go, go for it. Yeah. We've got this data on therapists over the course of their career, and they don't get any better. Right. On average. That's absolutely a clear finding. Yeah. And, but you're saying you learn from your clients. So there's some, there's some, there's something you have to do to learn from your clients. Yeah, it's called reflective listening. 
it's you, you have you have to make, trying to understand that person's perspective, making statements that are guesses about it, and letting them teach you what their perspective is. Uh, and I think that's not a that's not a common factor. That's not something that all therapists do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you aren't doing that, you're actually not learning over time. Uh, you're not getting better at this over time. So it it is a it's in a way a self teaching skill. Uh, if you do it, you will begin to learn it. If you mm-hmm. do it well, not everybody does. We have talked about that too. Uh, but for the most part, you it's perfect learning situation. Yeah, because you you don't assume you know. You don't assume you're right. Uh, you're making guesses. You're always making guesses and watching whether your guess was right or not. And so you get better at that process of coming to understand how the world looks through someone else's eyes and not yours. Yeah. And it, and our own training studies, Bruce, tell us that people can get better at that with training. And it's mm-hmm. a, a to, to my mind, it's a wonderful area for deliberate practice. If you are a therapist and you want to improve your ability to convey empathy, perfect area for improvement and can be done by taping yourself in session, listening to your own tapes, reviewing mm-hmm. the reflections that you made, discussing those with someone else. And looking for what I call barnacles and barnacles on complex reflections are, first of all, simple reflections are, are, you know, you only want to make so many of those. Those are ones that stick too close to the data. But when, when you're going beyond the data that the client is giving you, are you adding barnacles having to do with your theoretical perspective, perhaps, or Mm -hmm. from other teachings and advice that you want to work in there somehow, as opposed to what the client is actually meaning to say but isn't saying. It's it's analogous in a way to what gets called interpretation in a psychodynamic perspective. You're making a guess and and you don't want to jump too far. The premature interpretation is a very related concept to not reflecting too far away from what the person said. But if you don't go any farther than what the person said, you go around Mm -hmm. in circles. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, two points I want to uh, come back to. So first, Terry, this idea of um, if you're going to learn from these experiences, it isn't simply doing more and more cases. You actually right. have to watch what you're doing, maybe get some feedback from supervisor or a colleague um, or even the client. The client. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, the client, but you can't just go, okay, I'm done with that case. You got to watch it again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And in our training studies, that's what people do. That's how they get better is they do exactly that. It's not just that they practice. It's that they practice and they get feedback and practice and get feedback and practice and get feedback. And, uh, you know, if you're really attending to what clients are saying in the session, moment by moment, that's feedback too. So you can learn from the immediate reaction, but it takes more than that to really become uh, skillful at doing this. For some people, it takes more. For some people, they're just so good at it and they're tuned into the right things and they spend so much time at it mm-hmm. that they they get better. But for most yeah. of us, yeah. you know, it, it really does require some deliberate practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
there are prodigies who are just better at this to yeah. start with. Yeah, I mean, we know, I mean, Tim Anderson's work, those uh, graduate students in their first week who have higher scores on yeah. facilitative interpersonal skills, two and three years later, they're getting mm -hmm. better outcomes. The rich get richer. <laughs> I think the poor can get a lot better too. Yep. You bet. Yes. yes. Let's, let's not just say you're born with this skill. Absolutely. Or at least you come come to graduate school with this skill. I, I really think if we do therapist training correctly, we give value added. The best therapists get better and the poorer therapists get better. Yep. And everybody mm -hmm. benefits mm -hmm. if we do kind of the deliberate practice you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But most academic clinical training does nothing with the eight things that we have in our book on effective psychotherapists. We're, we're so fascinated with teaching techniques and manuals and you know specific methods without paying enough attention to these other attributes of how you do things that make such a difference. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree with you more, as you know. So I think there's room for optimism in that each of these skills can be used. Each of the eight skills we talk about are useful across techniques and across theoretical yeah. perspectives. They they don't yes. really they don't really require a choice between what you're doing and what you what we're advocating. I've heard Edna Foa say, however, that empathy is contraindicated um, because it reinforces uh, the patient's belief that they can't do something. Oh, my goodness. Well, I suppose that's an empirical question, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's testable. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, let's not focus too much on that. But I want to come back to another point um, Bill, and that was uh, around this inference you're making and use the word interpretation. So I gave a workshop uh, um, and I talked about empathy and I talked about this uh, inference about what's going on here. And there were people in the audience that were irate. We don't uh, 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 give people or tell people what they're feeling. This is for them to tell you. And that smacks of the psychodynamic power differential. Um, and I, I kind of said, I shouldn't have said interpretation here. Uh, maybe inference is better. But clearly, you're saying we do have to go beyond just the uh, surface message that's communicated to you as the therapist. Maybe I, maybe I didn't say that very articulate. That's why there are good data for that. that it, mm -hmm. if, if you just literally stick with, it, with exactly what the person told you and nothing more, it, it doesn't go anywhere. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, after that, I went back and watched some YouTube videos of Carl Rogers, and he talked about concealed uh, uh, emotions mm -hmm. and that empathy is the understanding 
of those concealed emotions. And, and that's the word he used. It's not a psychodynamic word, but it, it, it gets a little bit to this idea of interpretation. But it's, it's done in a way different than the psychodynamic often, which is, you know, I'm the, the all-knowing therapist who can understand exactly your defenses and what's going on. There's a right. lot of barnacles in that approach, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think those, those kinds of barnacles actually diminish the power of a good reflection, mm-hmm. of a good complex reflection. The concept of a beginner's mind, I think, is useful here also, the Buddhist concept, but but that you don't know. And when you offer reflection, you know that it's a guess and you know that it might not be right. And you're curious. It's coming with a mind of curiosity rather than a mind of, I know already, I'm I'm the expert here. Yeah. One one of the, one of the metaphors or, or analogies we use is it, instead of saying, the therapist saying, I have what you need and I'll give it to you. Uh, whether that's insight or skills or, you know, rational thought or whatever it is, this says you have what you need and together we'll find it. It's just a different approach from I'm the expert here to fix you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned curiosity. Oh, yes. And, And you talk about that in the book. And I often talk to therapists about curiosity. And I, I uh, use you two as example of a characteristic. So why isn't that one of the eight skills? Curiosity as, a, as an important feature of effective therapist. Well, I, I actually think we do talk about curiosity as being the internal component of empathy. That, mm. ther- that therapists, there are differences in how curious people are about what is in the mind of another person. And, you know, so that's sort of a natural tendency to be curious or not about those things, but that curiosity can be cultivated. Yeah. So it's not the skill. It's the, it's the therapist uh, uh, condition that leads to an understanding or at least a hypothesis about an understanding. Yeah. Well, there, there's a simpler answer to your question. Also, which is the, those eight things are what was in the literature. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think it, there are any studies of curiosity and client. Correct. Uh, though it makes sense to me. Well, we should we should uh, conduct such a study because I think that I think the curiosity is a wonderful concept for beginning therapists to think about and put into practice. You're curious about what this person's life must be like. Yes. This guy who's angry at uh, the leader of, of the government and angry at the racial groups, including the therapist. Curious what that life must be like mm-hmm. to be that angry at everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also a, a good starting point for scientists, I think. Curiosity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't yeah. know the answer here, but I, I sure want to know. Well, when we talk about the scientist practitioner split, I think uh, what unites uh, uh, good 
clinicians and good researchers, just what you said, it's curiosity. I want to discover something. I want to figure something out. I told my students with dissertations to, to find a question to which they just have to know the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was talking with Ed Jones, who I'm um, not sure if you know who he is, but he he was a clinical psychologist and then he became uh, involved in managed care in the 90s and early 2000s mm. um, and very much uh, uh, interested in measurement-based care. When he was at Pacific Care, he was using Mike Lambert's outcome questionnaire and efforts to improve outcomes. So one of the uh, good guys in the managed care industry, as far as I'm concerned. But he was talking about the integration of um, therapy into primary care in a way that uh, uh, it's not the traditional 50 minutes an hour for for six weeks or 10 weeks or 12 weeks, but regular appointments, but they might be 20 or 30 minutes uh, um, and regular, like the same way a patient might see their physician. And so I was asking him, uh, uh, well, what would the therapist do in this primary care integration? And he said, listen, that these patients come and the physician doesn't have time to really listen to what their life is like. So mm -hmm. just listen. I was thinking uh, um, that what a wonderful model for motivational interview mm -hmm. in primary care. So have you talked about motivational interviewing in primary care? as a, a, a way to uh, really get a sense of what is important for the patient mm -hmm. besides their medical symptoms. Well, Steve Rolnick and I have written books about that, actually. Motivational interviewing has taken off in primary care. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, the question is, can you do this in 10 minutes or whatever? And, and it's a question like, can you play the piano for 10 minutes? I, I think... Yes, of course you can. It does it make a difference is an empirical question. And there are enough studies to say, yes, it does. Yeah. Uh, that, that we're not limited to 50-minute psychotherapy sessions here. It's something that you can do much more briefly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, the, the listening is the key part of this. It, it's, it's almost the easiest to teach in a way. How so? Well, why do I why do I say that? I mean, we it's you you can specify what it is the person's to be doing. You can listen and, and give coaching relatively easily. You know, good listening when you're when you're hearing it. It's not just silence. Yes. Uh, and and so just getting the idea through of. You're giving the person a brief summary of what they're saying. That's a phrase Steve came up with. That physicians go, "Oh, I can do that." You know, I, I don't know if I can do this reflective listening thing, but 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 you're talking about teaching the physician to yes, listen. oh yes, oh yes, yeah, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Ed was thinking about having therapists integrated. Oh, well, you can do that too. That, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's also useful. And, and yeah. we did that too. And, and physicians like it after they get used to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will, would invite the, the uh, behavioral specialist into the consultation room you know, to, mm-hmm. to help them or warm handoff, you know, say, yeah, I mean, it really is important to get your blood sugar down. Now, let me introduce you to somebody who can help you do that. Uh, and the physician doesn't have the time to do that, but but they do do the warm handoff to somebody you can. So both things are possible. Mm-hmm. I guess I would say when you when you hear about uh, listening, it might sound like a passive process, but no. I don't I don't think that's what's going to be helpful. Uh, you know, like no. I've heard Steve uh, speaking of Steve, I've heard Steve use the analogy of of. Uh, reflective listening as a as a duck crossing the water right like on the top the everything looks very serene and still but underneath the, the duck is paddling like crazy right so they they don't call it active listening for nothing right there's yeah, a yeah, there's yeah. a lot going on in there besides just passively sort of receiving what the person's saying yeah in, in a way the the use of the term listening doesn't capture right what we're doing um, mm-hmm. and and I always thought that the yeah. act of listening is a bit of a misnomer because it it's it's yeah it is active listening but it's active responding mm-hmm. that's that's yes. a good point that's, <laughs> that's right. a good point yeah. yeah like the the parent said she's not listening that has an entirely different meaning you're not doing yeah. what I tell her mm-hmm. so one last question so uh, we have the brief interventions, which are very impactful. You've done the research to show this. But we have therapists who are so invested when they come to graduate school to be therapists, you know, uh, 10 or 12 or 15 sessions to really make character change um, for this patient to to uh, um, people talk about a second order change or something like this. So what's your experience with with kind of uh, beginning therapists accepting a briefer model in which they don't have this ongoing and lengthy relationship with the patient? Well, somebody taught them that, first of all. I mean, where'd they get the idea that you have to have 12 sessions or reading manuals or, you know, what's going on? Uh, So some of it is just modeling. You know, what's the message that you're giving? You know, when I left graduate school, I had a very different model and understanding than when I entered graduate school. Uh, So I think I see it as a formative process. Mm. Uh, And so I think it's our responsibility to help people understand a much broader model of helping than than long-term character change. Yeah. And I think it's that's based on a, a a fallacy which is that therapists change clients. Therapists don't change clients. Therapists mm-hmm. create experiences that help clients figure out how to change themselves or or how to have skills that they then take into the environment and it's the environment that operates on the on them that really, you know, changes them so 
I, I mean, that's just a that's just a fallacy that therapists change clients. Yeah, yeah. And cause and cause character change. <laughs> I, I I love your both of your attitudes towards this. It's, it's just uh, well, they just learned this somewhere, and, <laughs> and we we can change that. Yes, and and, and uh, it's just such an optimistic attitude. Yes, that you have towards training the therapist, but also to the clients you work with. That that. The 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 change is there. It will yes. uh, occur with the right context, mm-hmm. and that's a that's just a a wonderful optimistic way of looking at the world. And that is one of the therapeutic characteristics. We call it hope in the book, but it's yeah. But that that kind of optimism and expecting the positive and and noticing the positive and. Affirming the positive uh, makes quite a difference. Yeah, yeah, that's a real contribution of of uh, motivational interviewing is the 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 installation of hope. Yep, and you know the fact that somebody comes is an expression that there's some uh, little flicker of hope there. Yes, yeah. even if they were pushed through the door. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've gone a little over. We got started a little bit late, but this has been great, a great opportunity to talk to you. Um, you know, the the I focused on empathy because I still struggle with doing it the best I can. Hmm. And when I read the transcripts and I'm inspired by... Um, how it could be done, and so my own efforts to make it better. So uh, I hope I still have the optimistic spirit that I can mm-hmm. get a bit better. You know, by the way, uh, they asked Pablo Casals uh, when he, in his 80s, why you keep practicing four or five hours a day? And he said, I think I'm still making progress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we really need to to hold on to that sentiment that we can get better. Yes. Yes, we're still learning. Yes. Yeah. So thank you. And uh, I'm sure the listeners are going to be thrilled by our conversation today. Thank you, Bruce. It's a pleasure to talk to you. It certainly is. My goodness. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks for listening. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths offers a complete behavioral health EHR and practice management software solution, including claims, billing, clinical notes and documents, scheduling, and teletherapy, all for one simple and affordable monthly price. CarePaths EHR is HIPAA compliant and ONC certified, and can also support electronic prescribing for an additional fee. Their latest release, CarePaths Connect, includes automated measurement-based care and the ability to create a digital front door for your practice, as well as a free mobile app designed to increase patient engagement. If you're just starting your practice or are dissatisfied with your current EHR, go to carepaths.com to start your free trial today. To find out more about Bruce Wampold and his work as CarePaths Chief Clinical Officer, visit makingtherapybetter.com. <laughs>